You know, I almost think God had a hand in what we're going to try and do right now. I didn't know what Jonathan was going to talk about. And the lesson I'm going to try and present right now is one that is really close to what he was talking about from a different perspective. I'm going to try and make you think. I know that's not always popular. One of my favorite stories, I was doing a program somewhere in Arkansas, as a matter of fact, and the guy came up to me after my presentation, the one I'm going to try and present to you right now, and he's not a happy camper. And, oh, this is the dumbest thing I ever heard, the stupidest thing I ever had. I can't believe you came in here and insulted me with this. <laughs> And he closed his tantrum by saying, and I want you to know something, Clayton. I don't come to church to think. I don't come to church to think. Jonathan, make you think in that last session? I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to try and follow that up with a little different approach to the same subject. But you're going to be pushed to think. We tried to point out yesterday that science and faith are compatible disciplines. They support each other. They reinforce each other. They exist in a symbiotic relationship. That has to be true. Because God is the creator and God gave us his word. There can't possibly be a conflict. If there's a conflict, if you think of bad science... Or you got bad theology, or both. And there's been a lot of both. I want to challenge you for a few minutes to think about something. What do you understand God to be? I didn't say who, I said, what do you understand God to be? You know, it's interesting that when you look at the various Things that the atheists put out, and I'm hoping my clicker will work here. There we go. You see a lot of concepts about the nature of God. Is that your concept of God? Have you created God in your image instead of the other way around? Hey, that's easy to do. We all want a God that looks like us. We want a God that likes what we like. It doesn't like what we don't like. It has the same prejudices and the same problems and the same hang-ups that we have. And so we have a tendency to create God in our own image. And we ask questions to demonstrate we don't have the foggiest idea what God is. And I hear these questions every weekend on university and college campuses all across this country. Questions like, what sex is God? Questions like, who created God? Questions like, how can God hear my prayer and the little boy in China at the same time? See, all of those questions are rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God. 
And, and hey, I don't have any problem understanding why people in Church of Christ have a problem with this. You know where I got that picture? <laughs> Off the front page of some three-year-old Bible school literature. See, many of us were indoctrinated at a very early age with a completely fallacious concept of God. But it's in the scientific literature. This is the cover of Scientific American in an issue on creationism a couple of years ago. What's their concept of God? They're Caucasian, blue-eyed, white-haired, old, man in the sky. But it happens over and over and over in periodicals. And this is wrong. It is a completely fallacious concept of the nature of God. So I want to start out this afternoon trying to get you to think, 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 think. I want to tell you a fairy tale. A little fairy tale. It was written in the last century by a man by the name of Edwin Abbott. And the little fairy tale was written, by the way, I had some other pictures I wanted to show you of misconceptions of God, like that one. <laughs> Is that the spiritual warfare concept you have? Uh-huh. Atheist posters. This one's been on every college campus I've ever been on. Yeah, it's kind of bad, isn't it? What's the concept of God? See, it's rooted again in a misunderstanding of the nature of God. So let, let's try to stretch your mind a little bit. Let's, let's think. And this story is a little story about a man who lives in a two-dimensional world. What I mean is he lives in a world that's like this sheet of paper. This sheet of paper has only two dimensions, in the surface of it at least. It has length and it has width. Now I, on the other hand, am a three-dimensional being. I have length, and I have width, and I have considerable thickness. <laughs> and it's that third dimension that separates me from the land men in Flatland. And so the story of Flatland is a story about a man who lives in Flatland that has only two dimensions, and one day is visited by a sphere. Okay, so let's see if we can visualize this. There's the man in Flatland. He has only two dimensions. This tennis ball is a sphere. It has three dimensions. It has vertical, horizontal, and into the paper, three dimensions. So in the story of Flatland, instead of just having two dimensions, the sphere has three dimensions, and in the story of Flatland, the sphere happens to cross Flatland right in the living room of the hero of the story. Okay, now, now think about that for a minute. Here's the sphere. It has three dimensions. It's crossing the man in Flatland. What happens in Flatland? Well, what happens is a spot appears on his floor out of nothing. Now, that doesn't make sense to you. Just think about it for a minute. If I dip this tennis ball in red paint and touch it to the paper, what will happen where the ball touches the paper? Yeah, there'll be a spot, won't there? But understand something. 
A spot in flatland is matter. This guy is made of a series of dots. That's what matter is in flatland. So the material of which he is made has come into existence out of nothing. A miracle has occurred. As he watches in amazement, the dot becomes a circle. You thinking about Genesis 1-1? But understand something. A circle is a lot different than a spot. It takes lots of dots to make a circle. So matter is spontaneously being created out of nothing in this story. And as the man in Flatland watches the circle, and my pointer is on straight here, as the man watches the circle, the circle gets larger and larger and larger. See, what is happening is that the sphere is sinking deeper into Flatland. Now, this is, a, this is a violation of all of the laws of science, all the conservation laws of science, which say matter cannot be created nor can it be destroyed. But he sees it happening. As the circle gets larger and larger and larger, as the sphere sinks deeper and deeper, until it's about to fill up his whole room. So the man in Flatland gets scared and he tries to run out of the room. But just as he gets ready to run out of the room, the sphere reaches its equator, passes its equator. So what happens to the size of the circle? Yeah, it gets smaller. Another violation of the laws of science. Matter energy is being destroyed. And that can't happen. Everything the man in Flatland knows to be true scientifically it's not working. Now, as the story develops, the man in Flatland starts to talk to the sphere. The sphere has completely passed through Flatland, which meant matter not only was created and became of a super size, but it eventually disappeared. So they start to talk. And that's a weird experience, because when the sphere talks, the sound waves come up through Flatland. So he hears this voice come from everywhere and even inside of him. And the sphere talks to the man in Flatland, and the man in Flatland says to me, well, uh, tell me something, Mr. Sphere. What's it like to be a, a sphere? Well, the man in the, the sphere thinks he knows how to do this. So he says, all right, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to draw a circle on your floor. Now, that's not easy. Because, you see, this guy can't see a whole circle at one time. He can only see part of his circle. So he can't see the whole circle. He can only see part of the circle. The side that he's looking from. I'll have to use this one over here. He can see this side, but he can't see the other side, right? The only way he could ever see a whole circle would be to be in the middle of it. And if he ever got in the middle of it, he could never get out. People in Flatland commit suicide by drawing circles around themselves that they can't get out of. You understand that? It takes him hours to draw the circle. He has to go around the outside. So he has to come there, and now we're working. 
He can, this side prevents him from seeing that side, so he can go over here and look, but he can't see the whole circle. He would have to be in the middle of it to be able to see the whole circle. But it takes him a long time, but he finally gets the circle drawn. And the sphere says, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to rotate the circle. See, what he's thinking is the man in flatline can take the circle and go like this. And if you take a circle and go like this, what do you get? A sphere, sure. But what the guy in flatland does is he takes a circle and goes like this. And the sphere says, no, 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 no. Go the other way. So he goes like that. And the sphere says, no, 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 no. Go the third way. And the poor guy in Flatland says, you idiot, there is no third way. Because in Flatland, there isn't, is there? The only thing the man in Flatland can understand is the two-dimensional world in which he lives. It is completely and totally impossible for him to understand the true nature of the sphere. Now, why and I told you that little story this afternoon? And why didn't Edwin Abbott write it? Because, ladies and gentlemen, you are the man in Flatland. Except your Flatland is three-dimensional. And God is the sphere. Except God is however many spatial dimensions there are. Plus one. See, I'm not talking to you this week about a God that is made of silver or stone, crafted by art and man's device. That's an ignorant position. It's also a quote of Acts 17, beginning with verse 23. I'm talking about a God that is so superior to us, a God that exists in such a higher dimension than do we, a God who, according to all of our laws of science, touched our little flatland, so to speak, and created matter out of nothing. The process of Genesis 1-1 is what you see on the screen and what you see in those props that I just showed you. Do you understand that the Bible has always described God this way? How does the Bible define God? Well, we see things like God is love, God is light, God is a spirit, God is not flesh and blood, God is not a man, God is eternal, God is everlasting. What are those? Those are properties of God. And we do the same thing. How do we know there's such a thing as an electron? Let's go back to seventh grade. In seventh grade, you had a teacher that demonstrated to you there's such a thing as a negative charge. They took a dead cat, rubbed it on a little hard rubber rod, and showed you that if you touch it to an electroscope or to pith balls, it will pick them up. And you call that a negative charge. When you got into high school, you did the Dirac version of the Millikan oil drop experiment. And you proved that an electron has a mass that is 1,837 times the mass of a proton. And then, 
When you got into your graduate work in college, you learned that electron spins clockwise in that north magnetic field. But understand something. Nobody has ever seen a single electron. I'm an atheist. You say, I don't believe in God. I can't see him. I can't smell him. I can't taste him. I can't feel him. I won't believe in anything unless I can perceive it through my senses. Really? Really? You believe in electrons? Well, yeah. Well, how do you think we know there's such a thing as an electron? Because, catch this, we understand the existence of electron through its properties. That's how we know there are such things as electrons. And now we could talk about muons, mesons, hyperons, cascade particles, quarks. How do we do that kind of stuff? Well, it's not hard to understand. We understand that, and we do those sorts of things by their properties. And tell me something, folks. What are these? What are those? Yeah, they're properties of God, aren't they? The Bible is just doing what science has learned to do in the last hundred years, to give us a concept of God, which we cannot perceive through our senses by the same methods we have used to observe subatomic particles, electrons, and so forth. Do you understand the nature of God and what we can know about God? Second Peter 3 and verse 8, we see other properties of God. Second Peter 3, 8, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that a day is unto the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Do you understand what that's saying to us about the properties of God? God looks at time. The way you look at that screen, you can see the beginning of it. We can see the end of it. You can see all points on the screen at once. And God can see all points of time at once. That's a little scary, isn't it? You say, well, you mean God can go back and look at what I did 15 years ago I shouldn't have done? <laughs> yeah, he has, that he has that probability. He has that possibility. For a Christian, however, God has made certain promises, has he not? We see other statements in the same sort of way. And look what the, look what the science So Let me take a little rabbit trail here for a minute. This is an equation that our physics majors will remember. An equation for time, thanks to Albert Einstein. What it tells us is that time is experienced in a certain way. And you can see it up here. This time is the time you experience. T0 is the time you would experience if you were not moving. You say, I'm not moving. I'm sitting right here in my chair, bored out of my skull and full of food, and I'm going to sleep. Well, all right, but you're still moving. You're still moving. Because right now you're sitting on the earth, and the earth is going through in space at over a million miles an hour. Man, you're really cutting out right now. See, zero's the time if you weren't moving. B is the speed at which you move, and C is the speed of light. Now, notice something, algebra students. 
As your speed V gets close to C, V squared over C squared gets close to one. It's one minus almost one. So the denominator becomes small, which means the fraction becomes huge. Time dilates. Time dilates. Really? You mean time isn't fixed? That's right. Time is relative. And by the way, I challenged some of you this the other day. If V gets bigger than C, this denominator becomes a negative number, and the fraction becomes imaginary. What does that mean? It means we change dimensions. We change dimensions. So what are the implications of this? Well, let's take a little example. You got two twins. They're both 10 years old. You're going to take one of the twins and put him in a spaceship, leaving the Earth and traveling at a speed of light to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri Proxima. He travels for 4.3 years light on the Earth, and time-wise on the Earth. He gets to Alpha Centauri Proxima. He takes a few pictures. He turns around. He comes back. He's been gone almost nine years by my watch here upon the Earth. His little brother, his twin brother, is now 18 years old. And the guy steps out of the spaceship, and he's still 10 years old. You say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. What it tells us is time is relative, and it is a proven scientific fact. And God exists outside of time. So this is not a factor for God. The equation verifies the nature of time and the nature of God. What does the Bible say? Well, look it up. A day is unto the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Yes, we now understand the biblical truth, which has been verified by scientific evidence, and there are countless other passages which support that perspective. There's another part of Einstein's theory, which is interesting. I can get it to back up here. Jeremiah 23, beginning with verse 23, tells us another thing that science has only recently found. We have learned that when objects get near the speed of light, their mass changes. What? Yeah, their quantity of material changes. It's called mass Dilation. Look at Jeremiah 23, 24, 23. God talking about himself. Says, am I God near at hand and not a God afar off, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? What saith the Lord? What's God saying? He's saying he is here. He's in Andromeda. He's on Mars. He's on the moon. God is all places at once. And Einstein says, yes, yes, a God unlimited in time has to be unlimited in space. Science continually verifies the nature of God outside of time, outside of space, not a physical being. And I just mentioned Jeremiah 23, but do you remember the description in Acts 17? When Paul is talking to the educated elite of his, one, of his day in the city of Athens, 
Men of Athens are perceiving all things. You're too superstitious, or your translation may say religious. <laughs> These, the highbrows, they didn't think they were intellectually superstitious. And then he said, I'm going to talk to you about the unknown God. The same unknown God that was unknown then and is still unknown today. Because people continually make God in their own image. And do you remember what he said in Acts 17? We ought not to think that a Godhead is likened unto gold or silver or stone crafted by stone and man's device. For in him we live and move and have our being. Is that your concept of God? Have you created God in your image? And if you do, then you have all kinds of difficulties explaining the major struggles in life. Science validates the nature of God. And Jesus was looking over Jerusalem. He demonstrated another nature of God. Looking at the nature of God in terms of his relationship to human beings. We've had several references to this. Luke 13, 34. Look at the description given of God in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stonest them who are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered the chicken together as a hen, female, doth gather her brood under her wings, and thou wouldst not. Okay, male chauvinist, tell me that's a male image. Galatians 3 and verse 28 says there's no such thing as bond or free. No such thing as male or female, for we are all children of God. What a unique concept of the biblical concept of man and his relationship to God. In Revelation 21 and verse 4, notice the description given of man's relationship to God. And where we are eternally destined. What's interesting about this is that the picture scientifically of the creation agrees completely with the scientific evidence. We've talked about Isaiah quite a bit already this time. And take a look at three things that are stated here in Isaiah 22 and verse 4. God who created the heaven and stretched them out. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientifically trained person, so maybe I... I look for this kind of thing. But do you understand what it means to stretch something out in the biblical reference? The Greek word used here, or the Hebrew word used here is stretchulo. And I asked a rabbi that I study with, what does that mean? He says, well, it's like starting your lawnmower. You grab a hold of the cord and you go like that to get it started. And I said to him, well, that sounds like the expanding universe. He said, yeah, that's, that's the concept, that the universe has stretched out. But there's three choices. It says God existed before the creation. That is a scientific fact. You know something the James Webb Telescope has verified for us now? There was a specific beginning for the creation. If you hear yesterday, we talked in detail about that. 
that there was a specific beginning. There's a group of passages that talk about that. That God was the cause. We talked about that. A group of passages that reflect on that. And now that the cosmos was stretched out. Every statement in the Genesis account that can be addressed scientifically supports the biblical record. You can intelligently and logically and rationally believe in God. By the way, I will mention all of these references I'm talking about were some handouts that we had on the table. I think we're out of this one. If you didn't get one, we had uh, about 200 of them over there. But if you didn't get one, let me know. Email me and I can send one to you. It is on our website. And there's another one that gets into the question of who created God. Because I understand the nature of that question. When you say who created God... What did you assume? That there was a time, now follow me carefully here. You're assuming there was a time when God did not exist. You tracking me? You're saying there was a time that God did not exist, but God created time. God existed before time came into existence. So in the beginning is a reference to the fact that God actually created time. Time is a created thing. Our scientific equations show time has a particulate nature. So who created God? A person does not understand what God is. And if you've ever had anybody throw that at you, let me encourage you to tell them or to ask them what existed before time. And this little booklet is available to help you with that. One last thing to talk about. And this was something that Jonathan talked about from a different perspective earlier. Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he then, male and female created he them and called their name Adam. What does that mean? Jonathan gave you a beautiful presentation this morning, challenged you to think. Let me give you a little different slant. Here is, well, back up here. Here is a picture created in my image a few years ago. Here's another picture created in that image. Both of those pictures were created in my image. What does that mean? It means they look like me, right? Whereas one of my kids said, yeah, bald, fat, and ugly. Okay, okay. But they're identical, aren't they? Think with me. If you are created in the physical image of God, and if I am created in the physical image of God, then we're created in the image of the same thing. So what would be true of you and me? And what's the answer? Yeah, we would look like identical. We would be identical twins. But you don't look like me. You're not bald, fat, and ugly. Well, yeah, there are a few of you there. <laughs> I ain't going there. The point is we're not identical twins. Why? 
Because God is not a physical entity, and we are not created in a physical image of God. When it says God created us in his image, it's not talking about an old man in the sky. So all those pictures I talked about yesterday of what racial or ethnic nature God has are a misunderstanding of the nature of God. In the original language, when we talked about this again yesterday, there is a word used for God, Elohim, which is plural. That word is used when the writer is conveying the majesty, the power, the strength of God. You say, plural? We're talking about more than one God? No, the biblical concept of God is singular from the beginning. If you're studying with a Muslim, this is one of the major questions they will have. They will say, well, you guys believe in polytheism, more than one God. No, 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 no. Elohim is plural. What is it about? Well, remember Matthew 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, I don't know that I understand that. Well, let me give you a little parallel. You are three entities yourself. You have three different makeups that define you as a human being. You have intellect. I didn't say intelligence. <laughs> we can argue about that one. You have personality. And you have a spiritual component. What do you mean by intellect? Not intelligence. Intellect is the capacity of man to function free of instinct. An animal reacts to the here and now. They don't get bent out of shape about the future. They don't moan over the past. They deal with the immediate situation. You want to get a psychologist in an argument? Ask him how many instincts man was born with in the presence of another psychologist. <laughs> I just almost guarantee you an argument. We still can't even define the terms. But the point is there are things that we do that are not a function of instinct. And we see it manifested in amazing ways. A couple of years ago, there were a couple of guys walking across a field in France. And they saw steam coming out of a sinkhole. And if you've lived in a karst topography, as I have, you know what that meant. There's a cave down there. So they went down into the cave. And they saw this. And then they went a little further and they saw this. And then this. You know, these drawings, the oldest ones ever found, are beautiful. They convey a message. And they are technically well done. These guys got paintings to stay on the walls of wet caves for thousands of years. I can't get paint to stay on my house six months. This is no dummy. This is a highly advanced individual created beautiful works of art. 
that even to this day we can understand, we can interpret. You know what happens when you give a paintbrush or a crayon to a chimpanzee? He eats it. That's what happens. He doesn't sit down and express himself artistically. What is it in man that gives him the ability to express himself in art? You say, oh, well, that's because we've got such a big brain. That's because we're so smart that we can do those things. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. What is it, the man, that gives him the capacity to express himself in music? You guys have been singing an incredible number of songs. What gives you that ability? Have you ever heard of a chimpanzee writing a protest song? What is it in man that gives him that ability? And from his earliest days upon the planet, what is it in man that gives him the capacity to express himself in worship, however misdirected it may have been? You say, well, that's because we're so smart. I'm sorry, but uh, I have a very easy way to disprove that. This is my son, Tim, taken when he was... I think seven years old. My son Tim has a Stanford Binet IQ of 25. Now, if you don't know anything about IQ, normal IQ for a human being is around 100, depending upon who you listen to. My son Tim is extremely mentally challenged. Not only that, he's blind. Not only that, he has cerebral palsy. Not only that, he has muscular dystrophy. But you know what? Tim can still express himself in our ticks. Here's a picture Tim drew. I think he was about 12 years old when he drew that. And that's not too hot for a 12-year-old kid. But I think you can make out the apple tree, the flowers, the rabbit, <laughs> the neighbor's cat, hopefully not to scale. <laughs> but I think you can make that out. Some of the best art ever seen has been made by humans with very low intelligence. All right, a little comparison. You've heard about Coco. The gorilla who has been taught the sign language of the deaf by a lady named Penny Patterson at Stanford University. Coco has a Stanford Binet IQ of 95. That means he scores a 95 on the same test that my son scores a 25 on. This is one smart gorilla. And he's created art. Well, did he create art? Let me tell you the story here. Penny Patterson taught this girl of the sign language of the deaf. Communication is not a human prerogative. So she uh, put the gorilla in and showed him how to use a paintbrush. And she marked a screen with yellow paint 
and the gorilla copied and made a screen with yellow paint. And she wrote a dissertation that said, this proves that gorillas can create artistically. Hmm, that sounds pretty good. A little bit of a problem here, though. When someone walked in the gorilla's cage wearing a yellow paint or a yellow smile button, the girl would point to the smile button and sign banana because she had told them that the yellow paint was a banana on the screen. Someone walked into the cage with a yellow kitten. What do you guess the gorilla signed when it saw the yellow kitten? I did a youth rally one time, and one of the kids jumped up in the back, and he said, lunch! <laughs> no, not lunch. Banana. You can condition animals to make all kinds of responses. That is not creative ability. Man has intellect. That sets man apart. How about Personality. Oh, we could spend all kinds of time on this one. But what is it in man that gives him the capacity to express himself in guilt? Let me ask you something. You get home today and you find that your dog has chewed up your favorite pair of slippers. And you are confronted with this. What's going on here? Has your dog got some overpowering sense of guilt? No. You roll up a newspaper and he looks like that, he knows you won't hit his heart if he looks pathetic enough. That's a conditioned response. Your dog doesn't feel guilty when he bites the postman. He doesn't have any sympathy for the cat he runs up a tree next door for the 35th time. Animals do not have the capacity to forgive. This is a unique property of human beings. And what is it in man that causes him to express himself in worship? Why does man worship God anyway? What compels you to worship? I spent 20 years as a militant campaigning atheist screaming there is no such thing as God. Worship is just a way to make a quick amount of money. But there was a hole in my life. And it took a long time before me to realize I needed to look at something higher than myself. And I especially had to come to grips with the reality of life. And that's what our second session this afternoon will be about. Why would an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing Heavenly Father create something as dumb and as ugly as me? Why am I here? What's my purpose in existing? And especially, why do I have to suffer? You've seen me hobbling around here. I've got an arthritis. I've got back pain. I'm stiff. I'm sore. Why? Because I'm 85 years old. I hate to tell you this, young folks, but look where you're headed. <laughs> but why? Why is there pain and suffering? 
And does it make sense? And the atheist has no answer at all. You know, atheists like to, to raise all kinds of academic questions about why the role of pain and suffering. But when reality comes, they can't handle it. I want to tell you one personal story, and then we'll take a break in the second session. We'll talk about this in more detail. My parents were atheists. My two brothers and I were raised as atheists. I was a militant, obnoxious, campaigning atheist. When I first came in contact with Robert and with Dick Clay, who's sitting over there, I was a personal friend of Farrell Till, the Illinois atheist president. I was the Indiana atheist president. Some of you that have been out there with some of these guys know who I'm talking about. And one of the things that my parents indoctrinated me with was that you had to be stupid to believe in God. So I regurgitated that. My father died. My mother lived to be 93. My father was a philosophy professor. He was head of the philosophy department at Indiana University. One of the things I said to him one time was, the one thing about philosophy is that you can prove anything if you make the right assumptions. And I think that's basically true. But my mother lived to 93, and when she got to be 80 years old, she started having some TIAs. When she got to be 90, she had a stroke. She no longer could live in the Indian University Retirement Center. They wouldn't let her. My two brothers, who were still atheists, left town. And I had been disowned as a Christian because my parents thought I was stupid becoming a Christian. So I stepped in and tried to take care of her. I finally brought her home. Tried to convince her about God. Never had much luck. And then we were able to put her into a nursing facility. My, my two brothers still had not handled the situation at all. And I would go over and I would clean her up. That was back in the old days with nursing homes. They didn't do it. One night I was there and uh, she was pretty bad mess. I was cleaning up her rear end. She was 93 years old. And she said, I don't understand. Your, your brothers don't even see me anymore. They won't help me. They won't take care of me. I said, well, Mom, Bill and Jim are atheists. And atheists don't do that. It's survival of the fittest, and you're not fit anymore. And she said, yeah, but we disowned you. I said, okay. That was a temporary inconvenience. I still love you. I still am told by God I'm to take care of you. And I'm glad to do that, Mom. I still love you. She didn't say anything. I cleaned her up a little bit more. And she finally turned her head and said, I don't understand. None of my friends will come and see me anymore. I said, well, Mom, your friends are all atheists. 
I'm a Christian. I love you. That's what Christians do. And my mother turned to me and said, I don't want to be an atheist anymore. And I've often said, all of my intellectual arguments, all of my lectures, I tried to force her to read my books. <laughs> Ever tried to force your mom to read some? I tried to get you to watch the DVDs. None of that did any good, but when I was cleaning my mother's rear end, it made a difference. And that's what Christianity does to you. That's what Christianity does to you. I can give you intellectual arguments for the existence of God. I can throw science at you. That's my field. I'm a science teacher. I'm trying to keep up with all the new stuff. We talked about the James Webb telescope yesterday. But in reality, it's your service to your fellow human beings that makes a real difference. And that was part of what Jonathan was sharing to you in our last session. So we'll take a break, and then I want to come back and talk to you about why is there good and why is there evil and who created God and why... Do I have to suffer? Robert?